This class is about our roots. We are taking uh, these Wednesday nights on this beautiful fall to celebrate our roots. If you're a Christian, then um, beyond the DNA, the physical family, we're celebrating our spiritual family. And our spiritual family is, uh, to be specific, about 2,000 years old. That's, that's how far we go back. We're celebrating the birth of our spiritual family, the birth of the church, the birth of the kingdom of heaven, I think. Although there's been people that have debated in the past whether the church is the kingdom of heaven, I'm not going to get into that discussion. I'm celebrating the birthday of the church. Somewhere in the early summer of the year, I think 30 or 29 AD, uh, the church was born. It's Acts chapter 2. It's where we go to find our roots, the beginning of our roots. And we're uh, trying to cover about a chapter uh, a day, so we need to finish two and go to three. So I'm going to quickly go to where we picked up last time at the end of, um, at the end of, let me do that again. Yeah, there we go. Um, Let's pick up with verse 36. Uh, There it is. Are you there? Verse 36. That's where we left off last time. There was an amazing theophany that started in an upper room in Jerusalem. God came in the person of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit of 12 Jewish men. They were told in advance, don't leave because something's going to happen. And as best I understand, about a week after Jesus said that and ascended into heaven, they were in an upper room and it happened. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it was signified by wind, by flames of fire, and then this uh, beginning of this incredible event uh, moved geographically from the upper room, and suddenly when you're in verse uh, 7 and 9, it's clear that they're in the temple courtyards in a very uh, dramatic uh, crowd. It's the second largest um, festivity in the Jewish calendar. Passover is the first, but 50 days after Passover is Pentecost, And it's when Jerusalem swells with Jews from all over, and they're from all over. And Luke gave us a geography lesson on where they were from, and they were all compressed in there. And some of them had come from Parthia and from uh, what we call Iran and from North Africa and from Rome. They had come from far away. Jews, Orthodox Jews, very pious and they had come to celebrate this feast, and, and they did not know that they were coming for something even more important than that, which was the birthday of the church. It was the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and 12 Jewish Galilean men were able to speak languages that was their original tongue in Rome or in, in, uh, in Cyrene, North Africa, or wherever. And, and they heard it in their own language, and they heard Peter's speech, and we read it last time. This, I think, what is a summary of Peter's speech. And that's how it concludes, right there. That's where we left off last time. And he tells them, wow, we're in amazing times. The Holy Spirit has come upon us, and it's the, it's the birthday of the church. That's the summary. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know. This is his conclusion. And there's no invitation song, but there, there is a response. <laughs> It it goes like, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he's got to be pointing to Jewish leaders there in the temple courtyard, Peter does. You crucified him, 
Or maybe he's pointing to all the Jews of, you crucified him. Your leaders crucified him, therefore you crucified him. And he was both God and Lord. And that's the conclusion of the matter. Now, what happened afterwards? The response. You know it already. We are people of Acts 2.38, so we should know it. So, but but uh, can we read it again in a new eyes? You know, the early church was 100% Jewish. They were expecting the Messiah. Their leaders had rejected the Messiah. They had even crucified him, put him on a cross. The prophets had foreseen that. The prophets had foretold that. Jesus told the apostles that's exactly what would happen. But still... There's this uh, excitement in, in telling of Peter and the other apostles of telling he was the one. He was the one. He was the one that came from the lineage of David, and he, he was the Son of God. And 3,000 people are going to see the next verse, which is right here. 3,000. It's in verse 41. You know it well. A number. The number that's in Acts chapter 1 is 120. And they're scared, and they're praying. Now shift to Acts chapter 2. In the aftermath of Peter's speech, we have 3,120. Because if you do the math, it goes from 120 scared people to boom. Because of the speech that Peter, is Peter that good of a speech giver? No. It has to do with the message and the piousness and expectations they did not come expecting to get the announcement that the Messiah had come, but they did expect the Messiah, and this is what happens. You know the text very well, probably by memory. You can quote it better than I. The ESV goes like this. When they heard that, this, the last words in the full speech of Peter, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, they're using brothers in the Jewish brothers sense, what are we supposed to do now with this information? And then, of course, verse 38. And uh, as much as we've heard it, know it, is there any way we could just start from blank, start fresh, and look at it one more time? Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, you can, of course, uh, please interrupt me any time you want to add and interject. Disagree, even. I mean, that's, uh, this is your class. So, Peter says to them, let's re-examine. Repent. That's change. Metanoeo is the word in Greek. It means to change directions, change course. Before, when you came here, you were expecting still the Messiah to come some other time, and most of them are probably expecting the Messiah on a white horse, a conqueror. And instead he came and he died on a cross, and that's the, that's the, that's the part that they got, uh, got, got to deal with here. Um, and be baptized. There is that imperative. There are two imperatives, two commands. Repent. That means change directions. This is not optional. You've got to change. Change the way you view, change the way you look, change the way you look at that carpenter, whether you knew him before or not. You've got to change. And then the command to be baptized. That, of course, as you well know, is uh, you've got to go in water. There's water involved in this. There's a change of mind, and then there's water. You do the water thing 
in the name of. There had been a baptism of John. And it was repent. And it was for the forgiveness of sins too. But it expires today. (laughs) Or actually expires at the cross, some say. But it definitely has expired today. John's baptism has an expiration date. It was valid for a while. There are going to be 25 years from now still baptized in the name or for the for the uh, John's baptism in Ephesus and they are going to have to be baptized in the name of Jesus because John's baptism has an expiration date and it's today it's right now right here it's now be baptized a little side note i don't know where in the book of acts or anywhere else that the apostles were baptized and i uh, I think I asked some of you, what's your take on that? Um, The apostles were never baptized, at least the way we know it. They were like, grandfathered in? I mean, what would the expression be here? Um, I I don't know. Um, I asked my father. Uh, He said, no, there's no record of the apostles being baptized. So we have to assume they were okay with God. They were grandfathered in, or whatever expression you want to use. But everybody else, including those that have been baptized by John, for the baptism of John, today, this is the instruction. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And then you will receive, and here's the gift, the Holy Spirit. There are other passages you could add to this. I've told you before, I believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that it's pronounced here. Uh, as um, uh, the side effect uh, of your decision to be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, sir. That sounds good. Uh, and then their purpose is to baptize all of us who sure. Jesus I'm okay with that. That is, they did receive a baptism. Baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Quick review. They already had the ability to do miracles. Jesus had sent them out two by twos with the ability to do some miracles. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit's function is not just to give them the ability to do all the miracles. It may be that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the baptism they receive. At least I don't have evidence anywhere else for another one. Yes, sir. Or Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So the first five, I can reasonably say I have no evidence that they are baptized for the baptism of John. Now the others are added in when they give us a list. And I don't know. So they could have been disciples of John. You're absolutely correct. Okay. The promise is for you. Look at verse 39. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, George. We can, absolutely. And the reason for which Jesus was baptized was to give an example 
to set a beginning, by the way. Beginning of his ministry is marked by that, so there's several reasons. Um, the text tells us that Jesus says to John, do it to fulfill righteousness. Uh, that's what the text says. So absolutely. Uh, I would go with that too. That is, we might not have the record, but it could have happened. Absolutely. Any other comments? I found a few uh, fringe theologians that say um, the 3,000 number you got there, coming up in verse 41, of how many were cut to the heart and made a choice, made a decision that day, um, there's no way on earth that they could have baptized 3,000 people. No way. It's logistically impossible. Where are they going to do that? Where are they going to do that? Where are they going to do that? Have you ever thought that? I have an easy answer. Just outside the, down the, down the steps. These are called mikvahs. We have found archaeologically 80 of them on the south part of the temple. Guess what all those Jews that came every morning at 9 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon had to do before they went into the temple? Guess. Somebody didn't do it to you, you did it to yourself. You had to be ritually, watch out, it's not forgiven of sins. They self-baptized by going into these mikvahs. That's one of them. That will accommodate about, oh, uh, well, four or five people at a time. People coming from every direction, coming in, coming out. Then you can go into the temple. Where did they baptize 3,000 people? Just down the steps. Mikvahs. That's a silly reason to suggest that uh, Luke is not a very good historian and that the number's made up because you couldn't immerse 3,000 people. This is a mikvah. It's a go up the steps, go down. I'm thinking they needed a railing on that one for me, right? I would have fallen. <laughs> I like that one a whole lot better because <laughs> it's got small steps on it. But that's where, if you want to point to a place, they just walked down the steps from the temple courtyard and walked in the mikvah. Here's another mikvah right here. This one's got to go down and come back up. So that you can do a stream. You can get, you can get about 100 people an hour in that one. <laughs> Who took their confession? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This is where they were baptized. Look at other reactions. With many other words, he, Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them. Peter took it. <laughs> there it is. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Do something different. Be different. Go against the grain. You got 200,000 people in Jerusalem 3,000 accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah that day. It's the birthday of the church. And there are a lot that didn't. There are many probably in that temple that heard that speech and didn't. People of that time were just as smart and just as skeptical and just as uh, uh, obstinate as we are today. Uh, in a sense, we are technologically advanced and we get no more about medicine, but... Uh, the options we have are the same. We are no smarter and no dumber than first century people in my estimation. Now, what happens next? Stop me if you have a comment or question. There are 3,000 people that are detached from the temple now. And the question is, what do you do now? Okay, I am immersed for the forgiveness of my sins in the name of that crucified Messiah. And now what? What now? Uh... Their whole life, they had, they knew growing up as Orthodox Jews what to do. In fact, they had made a long journey to come to the temple for a major holiday. Now what? What do we do as followers of Christ? 
3,120 of the original Christians, followers of Christ, are all Jewish. But they had to detach from some things of the temple, like what? What is the one thing they can't go to temple for anymore? For the forgiveness of... Oh, that's a big one. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies every year for the forgiveness of... And instead, once and for all, don't need an intermediary. Don't need to do it once a year. You just did it. And it, it moves forward in time. You don't need to do it again. You see those ablutions they did to go in the temple? Those had to be done every time you went into the temple. Every time. And the high priest had to go in once a year for the sins of all the nation. And now, now your sins are erased forward even. And you have to do it once, and that's the power of the blood of Christ to erase. And wow, what a, yeah, but still, what are we going to do? <laughs> what do we do? What follows next? You can see it. And they devoted, here's the list of things they started doing, right? What did this group of people that were detached from m- most of the aspects of the temple, most of the things they'd grown up with, the rituals, the, the practices, the, maybe even the holidays, What do you do? So here it is. And they devoted themselves to? So you don't go to to the rabbi, to teachers anymore. Who do you go to? You're going to need those 12 guys because there is no New Testament yet. And there won't be a New Testament for about 35 to 50 years. And so you need to get your truth and your from the 12 apostles. See their important function. You need to fellowship with whom now? Who do you fellowship with? A new family, right? The people that you didn't even know till today. You didn't even know. And now you have a new family. Fellowship. Um, To the breaking of bread, what do you think that means? Breaking of bread, the word in the original Greek, uh, can be either one uh, eating a normal meal or taking the Lord's Supper. You look at the context and you decide, what does it mean? Yes, sir. Okay, so you're saying, grammatically speaking, or contextually speaking, it means Lord's Supper in a worship. So. You're talking Lord's Supper. Your opinion is that's Lord's Supper. I agree. So we're, we must be right. I agree. But there's another breaking of bread later on. Here, it's Lord's Supper. That's my opinion. Again, you get to have your own here. But I think that the context says, now, when did they break, break bread? When? Lord's Supper. When? On the... And that's indisputably historical record. Nobody to dissent. Nobody that doesn't practice first day of the week, Lord's Supper, disagrees with that. This is the way the early Christian community did it. That's the why I do it. That's the reason for which I do it. Because there's no historical record to any of them doing it any other day. Now let's, let's re- review. 3,120 ex-Jews that saw what day as a special day in the week? They now see it as Sunday as Christians, but before they had what as a special day? Sabbath. There's a massive switch. Used to, growing up, all your days, Sabbath was the day. Now, the day has just moved. Why? Because Christ resurrected on 
That day. That's the day you celebrate now. That's the day. So, awe came upon every soul. It's describing a collective feeling. Awe. Awesome. This is, this is heady times. It's, we live, we are living at the uh, shift from chapter 2 to chapter 3 of all history. Remember last time we said? There's the patriarchal age, there's the mosaic age, and then the kingdom of heaven, the messianic age, had begun today. And it was so exciting. Awe. Awe came upon every soul. There were many wonders and signs. Let me make an educated guess. Who's performing wonders and signs? The apostles are. The apostles are. You're going to find that out from the text later. Uh, we're being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, what's that? How do you read that? All things in common. What do you, what do you read that? What do you, what do you think it means? Shared their stuff. Yeah. Why'd they need to share their stuff? Huh? So many were visiting. There were needs. And once you joined this cultic group, according to the Jewish leaders, what were you? What were you? Cut off from the umbilical cord of visitors in town, in Jerusalem. Uh, they went about to every house, and they collected uh, part of your meal every day. You gave to the visitors to the needy. And there was even some of the temple money that was dedicated to taking care of the poor, the widows, and the, the visitors. Okay? What are you cut off from if you've just joined this sect, sect, this cultic movement of the follower of Jesus? You are cut off from all of that, and guess who has to take care of your needs? Family does. Family takes care. This is a new family right here. All who believed together had all things in common. We've got to take care of our own. Because the temple now, the temple guards, temple business is not going to take care of these people who've gone off on this tangent called followers of Christ. People of the way, as they're going to call them. Okay? Uh, they were selling their possessions, belonging, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So um, we're going to need to start collections here. Because we've got needs, we've got to take care of visiting people that are going to stick around because they uh, uh, have joined a new family and this is exciting things. We get to share in our, in our, in our possessions. Uh, stop me if you want to make a comment to any of the verses. Day by day. So Luke's telling you, now I can't tell you everything that he did by making a list of activities of the early Christian movement, of the early people of the way, our ancestors. They were attending the temple. Now wait a minute. They were what? They were still going to what? You can still do that as a Christian? Follower of Christ? They did. But I'm asking, are you supposed to do that or is this a mistake? <laughs> what can you still do in the temple? What can you still do? Yes? Yes? The temple is going to be where they're going to go to find pious people that are looking for God and expect the Messiah. So you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So were they going just to um, proselytize? That m might be your assumption. I'm not asking just John. What do you think? Hmm, you're not sure. Okay. Yes. 
Okay. Can I go in there to pray? Can I go in the temple to pray? Hmm. Why are Peter and John going to the temple in the next chapter? Why? Chapter 3. There were two times of prayer, 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Some say there was another time when there was a lot of Jerusalem Jews came streaming in towards coming down the sun like five, six o'clock. So two to three times, there were some pious Jews that went to the temple, left their shops, left their businesses, walked out, went up the steps, went into the temple, nine o'clock, came back and went to work. Came back at three o'clock. Yes? Later, this will become a problem for the Christians because when they are a part of the encouragement, they will want to take with them the habits of their early Yes. Things I grew up with. Yes, sir. Yes. There are no buildings. They're either doing it in private houses or they're doing it outdoors somewhere. It's the only two options you have. The question is, where are 3,120 people in meeting? Can't be in one house. So a best assumption is they're meeting in various church homes. And I don't know. Think of the organizational nightmare, Brother Bob. One apostle takes uh, 150 people. You do the math. <laughs> let's, let's meet in different, uh, uh, something like that. Uh, we're not given the details, but. Uh... Yes. This is the same expression in Greek, but the context has changed. This is day by day. Day by day, they were taking meals together, while the previous one was the Lord's Supper. Yes, sir. If all of them showed up. Yes. Solomon's porticos were a large covered area, and they probably said, meet you every day, or meet you on the Lord's day, meet you in the upper corner of Solomon's portico. Public. Right. And this is going to, correct, sorry to interrupt you. That's going to be a problem to the leaders, isn't it? Because the temple courtyard is their turf. They're in charge. This cultic group has just taken over. They come to their turf every day. They come to their place, absolutely. So courage. Uh, how else are we going to live out our faith except to tell anybody we can? Um, they were breaking bread in their homes, sharing meals in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. 
They were praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wonderful. Any other comments on this? I'm supposed to get through chapter 3. There is no way I'm going to do that. Yes. Any other comments? Yes. Okay. So, but we don't know the number for John's. No, You're saying 3,000 plus. Correct. Until he was arrested. We know that he operated for uh, six months or more, if not a year, before he was arrested by a king. Yeah, okay. All right, so the number I'm giving should be augmented. Sure. Oh, that, that you, you're su- supposing they were baptized. Okay. Okay. Sure. Sure, true. The only thing I would say about the apostles is they're up in Galilee, while John and his baptism is about 12 miles from Jerusalem. So there's a significant geographical distance between where John did his baptizing in the Jordan River and where those, you know, uh, fishermen were. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, I suppose they had to work for a living all the time and couldn't take trips, but they might have. Two qualifications, right? Chapter 1, they had to be with them from the beginning and seen the resurrected Christ. Does it say from the baptism of John in the text? Okay. Had been there from the baptism of John. Sure. Good point. Thank you. One of them was Andrew. So if Andrew was, maybe Peter was? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's right. True. Correct. Correct. All right. Um, talked about this. This is Solomon's portico, by the way. Oh, dear. It went up way on me. Um, try this again. Let's go back to that picture. You were talking, John, about, um, well, let me take you there. Sorry to come through so quick. That's Solomon's portico, the reconstruction of it. It was a massive structure. And, yes, my supposition is that that's where they were meeting, either on a daily basis or saying, meet, there, meet you there again so we can share our faith with those that are in the Jerusalem temple. Those are the pious ones. So, All right, chapter 3. Uh, like how many minutes do I have? Like uh, 10. Okay, good. Let's go to chapter 3. Any comments that you have, let's start, let's begin that story. Chapter 3 and 4 are the same story, so we don't, I don't need to uh, spend as much time on it, I guess, but... Uh, we may want to do that. Let me pull up chapter 3 and begin reading it. Stop me anytime you have a comment or a question. 
Yes. Absolutely. Good point. The temple is a good place to start. It's where the pious Jews uh, come. Uh, he didn't come to destroy the temple. He's come to fulfill it. Jesus will announce that that physical temple will be destroyed in 40 years from then, in one generation's worth. But the real house of God is not. It's not a physical. It's spiritual, as Paul will say, um, the church, the kingdom of heaven as such. Thank you, Brother Gene. Chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. My supposition in reading this is they were going to pray. Can I do that? They were also probably going because that's when a whole lot of Jerusalem went up there. So they had an automatic audience at that time of the day. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Here is a model of the temple with all its imposing uh, structure. It is the uh, heart of Judaism. It's the heart of Jerusalem. And uh, people are streaming in and out of there. That is a uh, kind of design done by uh, archaeologists, the best that we can reconstruct from the destruction that Romans brought to it. So you've got the nine-story high Holy of Holies in the middle. You've got the staircases down at the bottom, down here, uh, two main entrances, and you come up. Here are the walls. Gentiles passed here, the walls of women. There are the courtyards of the men right in there. So you've got the different sections of the temple in a coming and going. And, and there are Solomon's porticos. He's massive covered. And some others that are across here uh, on each side. Again, the dimensions. You have to uh, visit it to understand the dimensions of this place, which is huge, 13 acres. So it's quite big. This is another way of looking at it. The, uh, the central part, there is the courtyard of the women. Only Jewish women come in here. No women pass this. Then the Nicanor gate. And the question is, which gate was this man at? He's either at this one right here or that one right there. But he had a spot that he was brought to uh, because he can't walk. And uh, kind of like in beggars of our day, too, um, you will see that they are proprietary about where they can ask for help. When we travel in Egypt or Turkey, we see a lot more of these uh, street uh, um, Mendicants, those who ask for, for, uh, for money. Alms, alms is what he says. And he's been doing it for years. He's 40 years old, we'll find out. So he's been from birth handicapped, can't make a living, and is dependent upon the generosity of the Jewish people. And they're taught to be generous. So there's no embarrassment here, not on his part, and not on the parts of Jews. They know that he's going to be there, that you're going to have to decide what to give or not, Every time he's going to lay out his hand, he's going to say alms, alms. And there's a crowd. It's in the ninth hour, and they're coming in for prayers, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, and, and, and then it 
coming in probably from there, Peter and John, and coming into the temple courtyard, coming in right here uh, at the gate right over there. Maybe that's where it's at. These are various entrances to the temple at the time. There were 15 different entrances. There were major entertainment centers right down below, but these are the entrances that led in from multiple directions into the temple. And there's large crowds, especially at 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I think that that is the gate right there that uh, they're going into, and that's probably what it looked like. And he had his spot, his position there. And, uh, um, and then uh, a dialogue happens. Let me take, take you straight there. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And said, look at us. Noise, crowd, people streaming. He's by a a major door where there's a kind of a crowd going through. And then two guys stop. He's saying, alms, alms, anybody that'll look at him, give him my sight. And two of them say, look at me, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. In the din and the noise, he's been there every day. This is how he makes a living, counting on the generosity of Jews that come in pious Jews, and he fixed his attention on him, expecting to receive something from them. Otherwise, why would they have said that? But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Can you imagine the reaction right now? He's saying, well, then why did you tell me to look at you? But what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I need an explanation here. I need, I need somebody to tell me what just, what just happened here. No, really, I need you to tell me what happened. <laughs> Could you tell me what happened? What? A miracle is going to happen. I have something better than money. Um, I have something. In the name of Jesus Christ. Does this guy know the name of Jesus Christ? Probably not. If he's there every day, might he have found out that there's something going on every day in the temple? Might he know? Might he have heard? He what? Oh, he did. Yes, you're right. (laughs) Might he have known? What do you think, Brother Bob? Might he have known? Hold on. No, this thing was not done in a corner. He's sitting on an entrance to a gate where all this has been happening for days and weeks, right? So, he had been to Jerusalem and he apparently didn't know, the eunuch. Acts chapter 8. That is later. This guy's been there all his life, every day brought there. Can I safely assume he might know something? Because I'm looking for faith. Because every time a miracle's done, usually when Jesus does it, there's what? A requirement of what? I'm looking for faith. Do you see faith in the text here? He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you to. Did Peter, why did Peter say, look at me? Why did he? I know I'm asking to step a, a second away from the text, and we've got to stick with what's there, but uh, what did they want with that look? What? Was Peter, can Peter see the intentions of people? Does the ability of apostles, can they see the intentions? 
Do you know of any narratives that's coming up later where uh, they see the intentions of the heart, where the apostles have the ability to look into the intents of the heart? Do we have anything like that? Acts 5. What's in Acts 5? Ananias and Sapphira. Based on that, I think that Peter can say, look at me and can see the intent of the heart. Do you believe? And then that happens. I... uh, might be wrong. He took him by the right hand and raised him up immediately. His feet and ankles were made strong. Just before you go, can you imagine? I can't. Have you ever been in a cast, incapacitated for a while, to walk or to, to, to use your hand? Have you ever? Just for a while? And then you regained it when they took that crazy thing off? And you could walk again? He has never felt his ankles. Never. Never. Can you imagine? Wow. I didn't have rehab either. It was straight from being carried from the people to by the power of God. I'm going to suggest and only suggest that faith is involved here somehow, some way. Because I see that in the miracles of Jesus. Look at me. Get up. In the name of Jesus Christ, you're now going to walk. Wow, what a day. Thank you for your comments today.